Welcome to a new episode of Land Grant Holy Land in Conversation. My name is Matt Tamanini. On this podcast, we talk to people in and around Ohio State athletics and the sporting world at large to bring you a different insight and perspective to the teams, athletes, and university that you love. On today's episode, we are in conversation with the editor-in-chief of AwfulAnnouncing.com and TheComeback.com, Ben Koo. In addition to his work in the sports media and covering the sports media, Ben's also an Ohio State alum for good measure, so it felt right to bring him on this week. In our conversation, we talk about all of the circumstances that led to Ohio State playing a football game on a Friday night and how it got moved from FS1 to the Big Ten Network, as well as Urban Meyer and the Fox versus ESPN pregame battle, why there are so many Buckeyes working as college football analysts, the crazy Big Ten TV deals, the shady new owners of Sports Illustrated, and much, much more. If you aren't following Ben on Twitter, make sure to do that at BQ. That's at B-K-O-O. We will have a link to that as well as the social media for both Awful Announcing and the comeback in the show notes and in the article on the website. Okay, with all of that now out of the way, here's my conversation with Ben Koo. So, Ben, I think the, the, the reason that Ohio State ended up on the Big Ten network on Friday night in its game against Northwestern makes sense with all of the moving parts with the WWE SmackDown and the ALCS game getting moved. That makes sense why they put the Big Ten game on the Big Ten network. But I think the fact that there are major college power conference games being played, especially with you know the elite blue bloods like Ohio State, uh, happening on Friday night is a little more complicated and involves a lot more money. Um, from your perspective, as somebody who, you know, kind of observes the sports media landscape, when did this become an idea that, that Fox wanted to really invest in? It, are we going to see this happening more, especially with so many people that are adamantly and passionately against it? What is, how did this happen? How did, how did we get a, an Ohio State Northwestern game on a Friday night to begin with? Yeah, that's a good question, and <clears throat> unfortunately, I don't think this is going away. Um, so when you think about these TV deals, when they're done, uh, the sports networks are basically looking to fill up programming hours. They sometimes in the industry call it shelf space. So, you know, the Big Ten a handful of years ago went out, and uh, not a handful of year, years ago, I think it was two, two or three years ago, went out and, you know, they, instead of having all their rights pretty much with ABC, ESPN, um, you know, they split their rights and, uh, you know, Fox plunked down a lot of money. And now the Big Ten gets more tele television revenue. And part of that, um, you know, landmark deal was they needed to fill up more shelf space, more programming hours um, for Fox. And so when you look at like what that means exactly, um, it means we have to deliver them uh, a handful of Friday night games because they're looking to get uh, programming on, you know, Fox and FS1. Uh, the game was originally supposed to air on FS1. And to them, the more important FS1 can be to viewers in terms of live events, the more they can charge uh, cable operators to, to have that channel. So um, they essentially paid for some Friday night games, um, some other things to kind of think about um, with Fox and their Big Ten deal is we used to start Big Ten basketball season, <clears throat> conference basketball in January, and now we have, each team has usually about two games or so 
in December, and those games are usually on Fox. So that's because Fox or FS1, you know, Fox wants inventory on Fox. They need inventory on FS1 after baseball's ended, which they have after regular season college football has ended. Um, so these are these are things that we gave to Fox in exchange for you know that that landmark deal, and they did that with other conferences. And if you're asking, you know, is this going away? People can be unhappy. But uh, there was recently a story that came up with the Pac-12 really hated playing games that kicked off at like 7.30, 8, 8.30 Pacific time. That was really late for the East Coast. No one would see it. Um, you know, it was pain for fans to be leaving their stadiums at midnight and having to drive home. And Fox said, okay, this is the amount of money we'll, uh, we expect back from you from our deal if we want to not have these late kickoffs that you don't like. And the ADs looked at the uh, the number and said, we're just going to keep the money. So I think it's one of those scenarios where it's inconvenient, it's an inconvenience, people don't like it, it's not ideal. But when we look at the amount of money that the conference would have to give back, I don't think they're going to want to do that. So I think it's one of those things that we're going to have to kind of learn to live with because ultimately there, there's probably too much money for an occasional Friday night game or, you know, whatever. And th- you mentioned this landmark deal with Fox. Do you remember off the top of your head exactly what the round figures were for this latest uh, contract negotiation with them? So I think the, the ESPN deal was $1.14 billion. And then the Fox uh, deal, uh, all right, I'm reading it here because it's not fresh on my mind. Fox got the first half of the package uh, for uh, – million a year. And then CBS has a basketball deal with the conference. They, you know, you'll see a lot of our games on CBS uh, and that's about $10 million a year. And then the rest is uh, ESPN. ESPN feels 1.14 billion over six years. That's a lot of money, no matter how you break it up (laughs) and which networks are paying. And that money is really what has allowed so many of the big 10 schools to really invest in their athletic programs and to become bigger national contenders, not just Ohio State. And it's not just about football and basketball either, is that money gets trickled down to the entire athletic department and can go towards whatever, coaches' salaries, facilities, um, whatever. And, and that makes a big deal. And for everything that people want to say about Jim Delaney and adding Maryland and Rutgers, there was a method to his madness. And now cable operators might not always follow along exactly, but there was a legitimate reason for why these moves were made. And they do, for the most part, seem to have been working out. Yeah, I mean, I think when you think of Jim Delaney's tenure uh, as commissioner of the Big Ten, the Maryland, um, the Maryland deal, the Rutgers deal stick out. But, you know, we the, the conference launched the Big Ten network before there were really a lot of networks, um, before the, all the conference networks, um, a lot of the leagues didn't have their own networks, you know, in terms of like leagues like the NBA network or the NHL network. So he was really kind of a pioneer here. And he had to kind of go, you know, the first one through the wall always gets, uh, you know, bloodied up, they said. So just the fact that there is the Big Ten network, and then if you kind of want to think about it beyond just, oh, God, I can't believe Rutgers is in the conference or oh, Friday night football, I can't believe we're doing this. Um, you know, Big Ten schools and specifically Ohio State fund a really robust athletic department with a lot of teams 
spinning all the Olympic sports. And if you look at other conferences in the Big 12 and the SEC and, and, and other conferences, they are missing a lot of those sports. So um, these kind of television deals and you know the ability to add Maryland and Rutgers adds to that. Um, you know, it does mean Friday night football sometimes. It does mean that every year we get the, a game against Rutgers that, you know, really you don't have to pay too much attention to. But ultimately, you know, we're putting the athletic department as a whole on much better financial solid footing. And we're able to kind of pay the, uh, you know, football staff well. And uh, I, I think the saying that I like to use is that the juice was uh, worth the squeeze because, um, you know, we're able to kind of spend with, with any athletic program out there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not just an Ohio State thing. It, it's the rest of the conference is really kind of benefiting from these moves. There's certainly cons, but I think if you kind of, you know, look at it, 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 it really pours out. And like I said, uh, I, I just learned not too recently, like the SEC and the Big 12, I think minus Texas, they don't even have like soccer as like a sport for the university, you know, men's or women's. So um, it's not like I love soccer, but, you know, uh, when, when I kind of watch the USA men's team lose a game and, you know, I go, I, I begin to wonder if there were, you know, two other school or two dozen schools or power five conferences playing soccer, you know, perhaps that kind of makes the, you know, uh, the uh, kind of pipeline of talent a little bit more robust and wide. And that's a popular sport that, you know, a lot of, so, you know, soccer requires good weather for the most part and the big 10 across the board is, is has field soccer teams and you know the south uh those conferences seem to just funnel all of their money towards you know football where we're able to kind of better fund um you know a, a, the whole portfolio of sports yeah and what's interesting is that they're even when you compare that to the sec is that they have you know in theory when you just look at it from a viewer standpoint, they have the SEC network. Uh, you know, the Big Ten has the Big Ten network. They are both in conjunction with major uh, programming networks, the Big Ten network with Fox, SEC network with ESPN. You would think that those things are equal to each other, but the deal and the benefit that the Big Ten gets out of BTN dwarfs that of, of the SEC network, even if I remember something earlier this fall, Forbes or whatever, valued the SEC network as being worth more. But that was because of its relationship with ESPN. The actual money it generates for the member institutions is nowhere close to what the, the Big Ten schools get. Yeah, if you look at those <clears throat> those deals um, that all the conferences have. Uh, so to kind of recap, uh, right now the Big 12 is without a network, although Texas oddly has their own network. And I have no idea how that's going to persist after that deal lapses. The Pac-12 has their own network, um, which is kind of an odd setup because they actually have like seven networks. Uh, it's hard to make sense of, but they uh, they don't have a, a partner like the Big Ten has in Fox or the SEC has in uh, ESPN. So the Pac-12 is really not making much money off of their network. And then if we look at the SEC network, and the newly launched ACC network, they're both fully owned by ESPN. So essentially what ESPN has done has uh, written a check to the conference and to the schools um, to, to you know, get rights for basketball, football, and other sports. And so basically those schools and those conferences are working on like a guarantee. They know the exact amount of money uh, that they're getting from having their own network. And the Big Ten's deal is different. 
they're in the middle. So the Pac-12 owns and runs their network, which is a huge expense. It brings in a lot of money, but it pretty much goes all out the door to cover the expenses of running their own network. The SEC and the ACC, uh, they have no expenses. Uh, the the ESPN covers it all, uh, but they just get a, a flat check every year. I think it might go up incrementally from year to year, but uh, there's no upside to those uh, you know those schools and conferences. And so, the Big Ten's deal is kind of a, a joint deal. I think it's 51% big, uh, owned by the Big Ten, 49% Fox. So, Fox covers uh, the cost and you know does a lot of the negotiations and ad sales and, and, and content and so on. But if the Big Ten makes a profit after that, there, there's a split. So because of that, uh, you know, they've, they've kind of found the hybrid model in between what the Pac-12 is doing uh, as kind of having 100% ownership and what the ACC and SEC network is doing with outsourcing stuff to a partner but not having any kind of upside in the financial well-being of the conference. So... Uh, I think that model, uh, as you said, has worked out the best because as the channel does well, the schools benefit. Um, and so we, we've seen that. But also, uh, you know, the, the Pac-12 network has been kind of stuck in the mud. Uh, it, it's, the amount of households it's been in it has been trending down for a while. And, you know, they, they have some kind of issues longevity-wise figuring out what to do with that network. So. I think this was set up in a really smart way, and it's really impacted all of the schools in, in a positive way in terms of, uh, you know, more television money to kind of reinvest in your athletic department. Yeah, I, I think if I remember correctly, and you're the expert, so you might know better than I do, I think the original breakdown was 51% Big Ten, 49% Fox. I think maybe in the recent TV deal, that's flipped. So Fox actually owns the slim majority. Not that it really matters a whole bunch, but... Uh, I think that might have changed recently, but it, it seems to be working fantastically. And obviously that partnership with Fox runs deep and so much so that we are seeing a ton of Big Ten games in the premier spot for Fox's college football Saturday slate, which unlike with ESPN and ABC is not the primetime game. We've seen a lot of very big games and we can joke about the whether it's the big nude or big noon Saturday games all we want. Thanks to <laughs> Gus Johnson. Um, but the the thought behind putting some of these bigger games at noon is obviously they want to have a, a draw to their new college football uh, pregame show, which is shorter than game day. But for a lot of folks has become the must watch for college football fans, especially, you know, from an Ohio State perspective, Urban Meyer's segments every week breaking down film is something you do not get uh, on game day. And so as we've seen game day be this Goliath over the past 20, 30 years, it hasn't really had any legitimate competition. As Fox is starting to have a great product or starting to go on the road a little bit as well to kind of steal some of that game day excitement, uh, how are you looking at these two fairly similar properties, but kind of having very different approaches to how they pregame their college football Saturdays. Yeah, it's been kind of interesting to kind of monitor the ratings um, and, and the buzz out there. Um, Urban Meyer uh, has gone has over very well. Uh, you know, I think, as you said, his film breakdowns have gone, well, gone over well. He's kind of picked out a lot of different things that they're not as granular on game day. I think when you look at game day, a lot of it's the pageantry, the culture, 
um, you know, the, the human interest stories, which I, you know, they don't do as much of on Fox. It's, it's the signs, it's kind of the atmosphere. Um, it's the Washington state flag. Like it's, it's a whole kind of festive thing, uh, that's kind of ingrained in college football culture. It's Lee Corso picking the head, um, and, you know, the NFL, uh, or not the NFL, the, the Fox show feels like the NFL show. You know, they're in a studio, they have the robot, the music. Um, so it, it's very different in feeling. I think if, if you kind of want less of the fan base, the, you know, the photo, the kind of shots of people tailgating, the, the long kind of human interest stories, which you can kind of spread out across three hours. Um, you know, Fox seems kind of more brass tacks. Let's kind of, uh, let's get to it. Let's highlight a few games. Let's kind of lean on urban to give us some in, insightful, um, film breakdown. Um, so they've had success there. Game day has, has been the, the PR folks at ESPN have been quick to point out that they've been beating Fox in the ratings, um, by, by a good margin, which is to be expected, but, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, you know, Fox is in about 120 households or 120 million, I'm sorry. And ESPN's in about 80 million households. So there are essentially 40 million homes, uh, that can't watch game day and could only watch Fox. And so ESPN has been beating Fox in ratings about two to one. And the ratings have not dipped from prior years. Um, so ESPN seems to feel pretty good about that, but you know, there's been a lot of positive talk about Fox's pregame show. And one thing I will say is, uh, I don't think they actually moved the marquee games, uh, to noon to kind of reinforce the, uh, the, uh, the new pregame show. I think that was a factor, but what I think they learned, uh, having done college football for, I think about five, six years now is that they really dislike to going up against CBS and ABC and ESPN later in the day. Uh, statistics show that there's more people watching in those later windows. But um, I think what they, what they kind of, their, their thesis was more or less that why don't we put our best game at noon when there's either, there's usually no game on CBS. Uh, there potentially is no Notre Dame game on NBC. So we're dealing with the ESPN and ABC games that they, you know, it's the second tier group of games. It's not like they're, they're good games, which they put in prime time with Herbie. Uh, and, you know, CBS usually likes the 3.30 kickoff. So uh, I think they kind of found some, like, fresh air at noon that they could own that one spot. Um, so even though there's kind of less people watching and it feels a little bit less marquee, they're going up against uh, a much easier kind of slate of games. Um, so that's, that was kind of the thinking there that Fox could own the noon window and then three thirty would be kind of fought between everyone else. And then, you know, the, uh, the eight o'clock games and so on. So, um, I think it, it's worked for them. Uh, I think they're, they're showing that, uh, with their, with the ratings. Uh, but I think, you know, fans are still kind of not totally sold on it because, you know, they, you know, if you're a fan on the West coast, you might not be up at that hour. And if you're um, just kind of a fan of night games or just, uh, you know, it feels weird to kind of lead off the day and be the first game of the day. So, um, you know, I think, I think Fox is happy with it and that's something we're going to see going forward. Yeah. I, I, I'm personally excited by the changes that Fox has made. I, I'm not the biggest Gus Johnson fan in the world, but I like 
what they're doing with the pregame show. It's something different, and there's only so many times you can listen to Lee Corso babble on about something before trying to do an okie doke and putting on a a, uh, a mascot head. So I, I appreciate the variety, at least, uh, from those. Um, there, I, I want to ask one more college football question before we get into something else, before I let you go. Um, with the proliferation of everybody having college football, kind of like you just laid out, and you add in things with all of the different ESPNs in the Big Ten Network having multiple games every day, and then you have all of these other things. To me, and maybe it's just my you know proximity bias, but it seems like there are more Ohio State uh, alums and people with Ohio State connections <laughs> in the college football uh, announcing landscape than any other school. And I might not just realize it from other schools, but Ohio State's not the only blue bud. There's no reason that Alabama doesn't have as many you know people in there, or Clemson, or Florida State, or Florida, or USC has quite a few, obviously two on the pregame show with Urban, but. Is there a reason in your mind, whether it's, you know, just the the size of the Ohio State fan base, but between Herbie and Urban and Joey Galloway and all of the guys on BTN, even including someone like Glenn Mason, there's a ton of them. Do you have any kind of rationale for why that happens? Is the communication school, which I graduated from, just that good at Ohio State or, or is there something more to it? Well, if you graduated from it, I, I would have to say the school is that good. Um, so I'll I'll give you that one. But uh, I mean, you, you see this in other sports. Like, how many broadcasters for ESPN and and Fox for baseball are former Yankees or Red Sox? How many? True. Um, you know, for in the NFL, are people who played on like the Giants, the Jets, the Patriots? Um, you know, basically East Coast teams or you know other other big you know, fan bases with the Steelers or the Bears. Um, so that, that's exactly right. It's basically, was there, did you have a ton of fans where you played who will remember you and might kind of, rather than flipping the channel, might check you out for a couple extra minutes. They certainly care if you're good, but if you're, you know, someone who played at a smaller school, uh, it's, it, it's harder to get your foot in the door to show what you can do. So, um, I think they were saying Josh Joshua Perry. He was doing, uh, I think he was doing halftime and post game for the Big Ten Network, uh, which you know he's been doing for a while. But you know, now he got to do it for an Ohio State game because the the Ohio State game got moved. Um, so the, you're you're 100 percent right. There there are a ton of Ohio State former players um, doing media with uh, you know Herb Street, Robert Smith, Joey Galloway, Joshua Perry. Um, and I, you're going to see that continue. Uh, I think James Laronitis, Chris Spielman. Um, so, you know, and, and you, you have to also think that a lot of these guys are going to be doing Ohio State games from time to time. And and so it, it's good when you're when you're kind of watching your team. That there's this kind of a familiar voice and, and personality that you know. So that's only going to continue if you kind of look at the ratings uh, for college football. Um, you know, if you go to the last decade or maybe even, you know, the last two decades with Trestle, um, there really hasn't been, uh, an equivalent to Ohio state. You know, Texas is there sometimes, uh, Georgia, sometimes Notre Dame. Um, but even, uh, a school like Alabama, they have less alumni. The state isn't as populous as Ohio. Um, in terms of moving the needle ratings wise, Ohio state is typically when they're good, um, you know, it moves the needle and that has kind of a halo effect in terms of 
getting people who have graduated from Ohio State or played for Ohio State into media positions because there's just, uh, you know, the largest piece of the pie of a viewing audience uh, for college football is, is in most years, it's, it's Ohio State fans compared to any other school. So, um, and then, you know, other schools typically or other other fans typically know who those, who those players are. So um, you're 100% right. And, and it's kind of the un, unspoke about rule uh, in, in every sport, you know, with, uh, with so many of the kind of uh, blue bloods in baseball and in college basketball and in, uh, you know, in the NFL, th- those schools and, and teams typically place the most people into media positions. Um, the last thing I wanted to move on, moving a, a little bit away from college sports, specifically in Ohio State, is I'm going to talk about the situation that's happening at Sports Illustrated. I, I think a lot of people probably saw on Twitter a few weeks ago that a large portion of the Sports Illustrated staff was let go. Um, and this all had to do with their the, the new company that owns Sports Illustrated called Maven. They are transitioning to a different model and really changing what the essence is for the Sports Illustrated brand. Um, I know you are working on something about that. Your uh, your site, Awful Announcing, has has covered this in depth. But I just kind of wanted to see if you could, one, do a real quick nutshell explanation as to what is going on with Sports Illustrated and Maven, and then kind of see what your thoughts are on this whole situation where a beloved legacy brand in sports media is really being siphoned off for, for parts and given to... Uh, you know, folks who don't have the credibility and credentials that a lot of the people that were fired did. Yeah. And, you know, if you're listening, and this is kind of interesting because, you know, if you're under the age of 30, Sports Illustrated is obviously something you're probably, you know, aware of and have probably been on their website. You may have had a magazine subscription, but if you're over the age of 30 and, you know, you were always known growing up or as an adult, as like a sports fan, you know, you subscribe to Sports Illustrated and, and you read it and you read it, you know, you when it came every week, you would read through it. And, you know, there were there used to be 52 editions and you go from the front cover to the back. Um, and it was something you looked forward to. And it was a really important kind of piece in your development uh, in becoming a smart, knowledgeable sports fan. Um, and it's been kind of a rough two decades for the magazine. And, and now we're here. And, you know, it, it's had a tough time. They, they tried to launch a TV channel around it a couple times. Uh, that didn't work. It was in AOL Time Warner, and then it was in Time uh, when, you know, those two companies split apart. Uh, and then, you know, not too long ago, Time sold the magazine to a company called Meredith. Uh, and or Meredith essentially bought, you know, all of the properties from Time. And they were mostly interested in a couple other magazines, but not Sports Illustrated. So Meredith, uh, the company was looking, not the person, uh, was looking to sell uh, Sports Illustrated. And that process took a long, long time. And in the meantime, they had sold other magazines. They, they had sold, uh, uh, I think, Time Magazine. They found someone to buy it. And eventually, they found a, uh, a company, and this process took way too long. A lot of people were kind of um, you know, raising their eyebrows and scratching their heads at why the process took so long. But they found a company called Authentic Brands Group, ABG is what people call it. And the thing about ABG is is that it's not like a magazine company or a print company. Um, it's a company that buys brands uh, that are kind of on the downfall, 
but usually it's like fashion brands, like boots brands and cologne brands huh. and and so on. And they also bought the rights to like I think Muhammad Ali and Marilyn uh, Marilyn Monroe. And they basically find ways to kind of pump new blood into merchandising these brands. So ABG's idea for Sports Illustrated was that they were going to like have like Sports Illustrated uh, branded like medical clinics for like, you know, if you have a sports injury, there's going to be a Sports Illustrated medical clinic in your city and that there would be more sweatshirts with uh, Sports Illustrated covers on them from back in the day. Um, and, you know, this is a long-winded way to say, well, they don't know anything about running the magazine. What was their plan there? <laughs> uh, their plan there was going to let the existing people run it, <clears throat> and they paid $110 million to buy Sports Illustrated. But what they ended up doing, which was a big surprise and has really kind of um, been the heart of this issue, is they were offered uh, 45 I think it was $45 million by the company you mentioned, The Maven, um, to basically hand over control of the magazine and the website. Uh, so while the company ABG is going to look to make money, you know, with clothes and coffee mugs and God knows what else, uh, the Maven is now in charge of the content of Sports Illustrated. And the Maven, um, you know, it, it's a pretty universal opinion that the founders of, of that company have, have kind of had a track record of, you know, bankruptcies of uh, media companies. Um, there's just a, a lot of, you know, there's been a lot of litigation with companies that they've run. Um, the founder, Jim Heckman, is actually the founder of the Rivals Network, who I'm sure a lot of listeners know well. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he bankrupted uh, Rivals nearly 20 years ago. Um, and then it was bought out of bankruptcy. And then he would later found Scout. So the founder of this company founded both those companies. Uh, but he would later go on to the bankrupt scout as well. Um, and so I think his, his idea with the Maven um, is, you know, it's a great brand to work with Sports Illustrated, but I think he wants to kind of have a similar to a fan-sided or an SB Nation uh, or a scout or a rival. He wants to have kind of, you know, different sites per team, and those people aren't going to get paid much, but they're going to be told to kind of produce a lot of content. And meanwhile, to kind of pay for that, um, you know, about a third to a half of Sports Illustrated employees were let go the first day that the Maven took over control of Sports Illustrated. So um, it, it's very troubling people who know um, kind of the background of the people who are now in charge of Sports Illustrated. We did an article last week that, in their SEC filing, they're losing a lot of money. They have a lot of loans. Um, you know, I, there, there's a lot of skepticism that they're going to be able to to operate long term, given um, just how the company's set up and who's involved. And uh, if you're a fan of Sports Illustrated and they've been kind of waiting for years for it to make some type of comeback, um, you know, I think most people would tell you that that's uh, kind of unlikely in terms of in their, uh, you know, given who's who's operating it right now. So if you have some favorite Sports Illustrated writers, you should maybe double check uh, to find them on Twitter to make sure they're still there. <laughs> um, a lot of good people were let go. And I think uh, there, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of thought that the long-term kind of reputation of the, of the company is in, uh, is in bad shape going forward. 
Yeah. Uh, it makes me think of an old quote from one of my favorite TV shows, which just so happens to be about sports media, uh, Sports Night, where someone, you know, and I'm going to paraphrase, if you can't make money off of Sports Illustrated, maybe you shouldn't be in the making money business because the the quality and the content <laughs> from Sports Illustrated is, is and has always been uh, fantastic and unique. And obviously, like you said, the last few decades haven't been great for it as all of the media landscape has changed quite a bit. But I would have much preferred to bet on Sports Illustrated figuring it out on their own rather than a company like this taking over. So it's very sad, especially for someone who not only did I have a, a subscription to Sports Illustrated, I had Sports Illustrated for kids even before the Sports yeah, Illustrated they're, one. They're... Yeah, so I loved I loved. Well, how old those... were you when you made the switch? Because I remember I told my mom that I wanted to make the switch. And, uh, she, I think I had to have a tantrum or two before <laughs> she let me get uh, Sports Illustrated. But yeah, I remember I started on Sports Illustrated for kids and eventually uh, – you know, was was allowed to to move up to the the uh, the adult version. Yeah, I, I I don't remember when I made this. I think there was a a bit of time where there was an overlap because I've got a younger brother and sister who are both into sports. So I think there was mm -hmm. an overlap when we got both. And I think my dad always got Sports Illustrated too. So it might have just been that I was stealing his Sports <laughs> Illustrated and reading. But um, <laughs> of course, not the swimsuit issue. I was never allowed to to have that one until I graduated and moved out of the house. But. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, Ben, I really appreciate it. This is great information, and it's a part of sports that has such an impact on what fans see, whether that's the TV stuff that we talked about before or the 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 magazine side of things where so many people get their information. Um, but it's not something that we talk about nearly enough. We spend so much more time about you know, talking about who's going to win the Heisman and who's going to win this, uh, and I don't think that people realize how much of an impact the sports media world uh, really plays a part in what we actually see on the field and how we see it. But so I really appreciate you kind of running through all of this stuff. And as a fellow Buckeye, it's, it's always good that, to know that there are good people in sports media, not just who have been associated with the football team as well. Yeah. Happy to come on. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're listening, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm at BQ. Um yeah, it's, it's an interesting time uh, for Ohio State. It's an interesting time in media. So uh, if you listened, uh, appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Land Grant Holy Land in conversation. Also, thanks, of course, to Ben Koo. You really should follow him on Twitter at BKoo and his sites at The Comeback and at Awful Announcing. If you are finding this podcast on the website, don't forget to go to your favorite podcasting app and subscribe so that you get all of the Land Grant Holy Land audio goodness this fall, in which we bring you at least one episode every single day during the football regular season. Also, don't forget to follow Land Grant Holy Land on Twitter at LandGrant33. You can find me on Twitter at BWWMATT. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon, and go Bucks.